I would like to talk with you today about claiming what is already yours. Learning how to claim what's already yours. Have you ever been in that situation where you've had a claim ticket and you go to retrieve and claim what's already yours? If you've flown on a commercial flight, you've done this. You've checked your bags in at one airport and you get on the plane and then you get off the plane and everyone shows up at the baggage carousel, right? And uh, you wait and you wait and then the, the black rubber mat starts scooting around in the circle and then there's this metal slide and thump, down come the bags and you think, Wow, they really abuse those bags, right? <laughs> Have you ever seen the baggage guys out the window of the plane when they're loading them? And they're just like, whew, whew. well, I hope there wasn't anything breakable in there. So the bags start coming down onto the baggage carousel and you're looking for yours. Why? Are, are you looking to get something that you don't already own? I hope not. You're looking to claim what is already yours. And in our text today, in John chapter 14, uh, we're going to be a, a little bit overwhelmed because there's some incredible theological truth here when Jesus says that he's the only way to salvation. He's the only way to eternal life. But we're also going to see some really practical daily stuff. And one of the themes, as I kept reading over John 14 and praying over it, was this realization that Jesus kind of says to Thomas and the disciples, I've already given you peace. You just need to learn to claim it. I've already given you the way to eternal life and fulfillment. You just need to understand that you already have that if you know Christ. If you know Christ, you have so many things available to you that if you're like most Christians, you may have not claimed yet. One of those things for us dads is the ability to be an impossibly good dad. It's hard work being a dad. It's hard work having someone look to you for unconditional love and for affirmation and for provision and direction and appropriate discipline. It's hard work. It's something that in my own strength, I could never be a good dad. And I'm still not a perfect dad, but in Christ's strength, I'm an impossibly better dad than I could be in my own strength. If you're not a dad and you're here today, for all of us, do you realize Jesus is going to say in this passage, you can have peace in times of difficulty. No matter what's going on around you, no matter what your circumstances are, you can have an inner peace. And I want to help you learn today how to claim that. How to show up and say, yeah, Christ purchased that for me. He said it's mine and, and I'm going to grab it by the handle and I'm going to take that peace with me. As I go today, I came across an interesting story about someone who had something and never bothered to claim it. Did you know, according to CNN, that every year about $800 million in lottery winnings go unclaimed? Okay, so here's this person, and they take the time and the money to go buy this piece of paper with these incredible unlikely odds, and then they win... But they never show up to claim it. Here's one story from the California Lottery, November 2013. It's titled, $213 million. Okay, let's, let me just help you here, okay? You guys know how much 100000 is? Take 10 of those and you get a million, right? 213 of those 
million-dollar Powerball jackpot pot still unclaimed. Sacramento. It's no mystery that $213 million is a lot of money. What is a mystery still is who won that massive jackpot after buying a Powerball ticket that matched all six winning numbers at a Fresno gas station. There's a good chance the winning numbers meant something to the lucky winner because whoever purchased the ticket for the October 23 drawing picked the numbers by hand and did not buy a quick pick, whatever that means. So, okay, so this person goes, right? And they say, these are my numbers. And then their ticket wins $213 million and they never show up to claim it. Well, in our text today, we're learning that as Christians, we've been given gifts far more valuable than millions of dollars, but very many of us have not claimed them. Gifts of peace, of purpose, of fulfillment, of strength, which are yours in Christ, but have you claimed them? We're continuing our study of Jesus' I am statements, and here's what Jesus says today. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As I mentioned earlier, this is just packed, you know, the way it snow plows in the winter, they keep packing the snow uh, up again. Well, you guys aren't from Michigan, so maybe you don't know what I'm talking about, okay? But they keep packing the snow in the parking lots, and the pile gets bigger and bigger, and it's this very thick icy snow because it's just packed and it's compacted, and that's how our passage is today. It is just packed with truth with theological truth that that theologians anchor huge doctrines on this little portion of Scripture, John chapter 14. But it's also packed with just super practical stuff for you today. Here's our immediate context in John chapter 13. In fact, about a year and a half ago, we did a whole series on John chapter 13. You might remember it. It's where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It's the night before Jesus is going to be crucified, and he starts to tell the disciples that he's, die, he's going to die for the sins of the world. The disciples are very confused. But before Jesus tells them all this, he gets down on his hands and knees, creator God, and, and he gets a, a basin and water. And between the 12 disciples, right, there's 120 toes, And these toes probably have fungus on them. These toes are dirty toes. These are sandal toes in a, in, in a desert kind of culture. And Jesus washes every one of those toes by hand, including Judas's toes. And and by the way, it's during that time that Jesus says, the greatest, to be the greatest in my kingdom, do what I'm doing right now. Serve humbly. Well, as Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going to die on the cross for the sins of the world, the disciples are very confused. They're distraught. And then Jesus says, not only is he going to die, but he's going to be betrayed by one of them. They don't know yet that Judas is a traitor. And so the disciples are just in turmoil. And then if that wasn't enough, Peter, who's been the most kind of, you guys know Peter, right? He's kind of outspoken. Sometimes he puts his foot in his mouth, but he's always like, Jesus, I'm here for you. Jesus, I'm, you know... Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, even you are going to deny me three times. Now, the disciples have left their families. They've left their careers. They've left everything to follow Jesus. They thought when they started out that Jesus was going to set up a kingdom on earth immediately, that he was going to be King Jesus in a couple of years, and they were all going to serve on his cabinet and have authority. And now they're learning that this faith thing really means 
not knowing what's ahead and trusting Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to die and I'm going to go away and come back for you. The disciples are very, very, very troubled in this context. So while there's a lot of theology in here, we shouldn't miss the reality that Jesus is giving words of comfort to people who are hurting. And here's the first hurt in the context. If you look at the last verse of chapter 13, verse 38, Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus has just said, I'm going to the cross. And Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, uh, I'll die. I'll die instead. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. In other words, you are going to fail. You're going to fail. There's a principle here. When you fail, not if, when, then look at chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, before we get into all the meat of this, I just want to point out that you got a glimpse here of the Heavenly Father's heart, okay? Because Peter, Peter is, is about to fail. And Jesus doesn't say, so Peter, you never deserve to be one of my disciples because you're so messed up. You're always stumbling. You're always putting your foot in your mouth. You're going to deny me three times, so I'm done with you. Some of us think that our heavenly father sees us that way. (laughs) But Jesus, with ease, says, Peter, you're going to fail me. You are going to mess up. But don't worry. Don't let it trouble your heart. Because your faith isn't in you, Peter. Your faith is in God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Maybe you're here today as a dad, and you look back on your years as a dad, and and you feel like, wow, I really could have done better at some things. Or, Or you see some of the choices that your kids have made, and maybe they're poor choices, and you blame yourself. You know that the heart of the Heavenly Father is that when we fail, he comes to us to comfort us. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in me. He still has the power to redeem. He has the power to make things right. For all of us, when we fail, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Let's keep reading through our text. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus is talking about heaven. He's talking about kingdom come. I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the second coming when Jesus returns. That where I am, there you may also be. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Okay, so Thomas is saying, Lord, um, you're talking about something that we don't have. And here Jesus is going to say, you do have it because you know me and you've trusted in me. You just need to learn to claim it. Let's look at verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Lots of principles we're going to pull out of our text today, and here's the first one. When Jesus says, I am the way, he's claiming to be the only one who can reunite you with your true Father, your Heavenly Father, because that's what he says in the text. He doesn't just say, I'm the way to heaven. That's what we tend to think of. He says, I'm the way to the Father. Why? Because the Father is the source of everything that's good in the universe. James 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift, anything that's good in your life, if you trace it back through its family tree, it comes from your Creator, your Heavenly Father. And on the flip side, everything that's bad in your life comes from sin, comes from the deceiver, comes from turning away from God. Jack, our son, is four years old, and and he's kind of a learner. He loves asking me questions. And uh, lately we've been talking a lot about World War II because the World War II uh, airplanes, a few of them had come through the Prescott Airport. So he's learning all about these airplanes and Japan and Nagasaki and all this stuff. And it's, uh, I thought of Jack as I was studying this passage because uh, Jack is only four years old, and I think he's pretty bright for his age, but he has a limit. There's a limit to his capability of learning about World War II or learning about how an internal combustion engine works or learning about anything that when he's a, a full-grown man, he'll be able to comprehend these things. And so we'll be talking about a certain kind of car or World War II or something else, and he'll get to a certain point where it's just like, okay, that's enough, you know? He'll be really interested for a long time, and then it just reaches this, this is just beyond me. And I think this is exactly how the disciples felt as Jesus was saying these words in John chapter 14. Honestly, it's 2,000 years later, I get to see the whole backstory and how it all fits together. And when I read John chapter 14, there's still moments where I'm like, wow, this is just blowing my mind. There's just so much in here. And Jesus is is like a father talking to a son like that. There's so much about what he has planned and how good he is that we just, there's a limit to our understanding and we can't understand it all. We can't fully comprehend it all. So that's my footnote as we go into this text. That man, if, you know, if we could have our way, we'd do a 20-part series on this chapter. There is so much meat in here. But the first and most important thing is Jesus claiming this. He is the only one who can reunite you with your true Father, your Heavenly Father. And I have to ask you, do you know the way to God? Do you know the way to eternal life? Today, if you were to pass away, do you know you'd be with your Creator God for eternity? Jesus says it's very simple. If you know me, you know the way. If you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've called out to Him to be your Savior, then you do know the way to God. And if you haven't trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you don't know the way to God. You could have a PhD in religion from Duke or Yale. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you haven't trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, you don't know the actual way to God according to what Jesus is saying here. It's so interesting to me that the ultimate thing is to be with the Father in Jesus' terms. 
Jesus, who knows more than we know, who knows what's actually best for us, he says, the best thing for you, it's not the mansions or the rooms. That stuff's cool. Not the streets of gold. That stuff's great. But it's the Father. It's God himself. It's the source of all that's good in the universe. I was thinking about this because it is Father's Day weekend, how we we tend as we grow up to learn to define ourselves in different ways by our fathers, our human fathers, and their strengths and their weaknesses. You'll meet adults who are, are still looking for approval because they never got it from their dad. You'll, you'll meet adults who are still looking for unconditional love because they never got it from their dad. And, and I was just thinking, you know, Jesus is talking about the Father so much in this passage, and it just happened to fall on Father's Day. And I thought, well, I, I just I want to encourage our people. I just want to encourage you quickly with this idea. If you have father wounds in your life, areas where you were neglected or abandoned or hurt, there's this awesome thing, and Father's Day is a neat reminder of it, that every one of those is an opportunity for you to realize where there's a hurt because my earthly father was insufficient. I can get to know my heavenly father in that specific area because he is sufficient. Here's what I mean. If your earthly father neglected you, you can say, Father, Heavenly Father, will you help me to learn that you want me, that you care about me, that you're looking out for me? Where maybe an earthly father belittled you, your Heavenly Father loves you. Where maybe an earthly father rejected you, your Heavenly Father accepts you. Where maybe an earthly father humiliated you, your Heavenly Father takes pride in you. He says in Ephesians 2 that you are his workmanship, his masterpiece. If you had an earthly father who was constantly criticizing you, do you know that you have a heavenly father who's constantly encouraging you? Who, if you've trusted in Christ, when he looks at you, he doesn't see a single flaw because he sees the blood of Christ. He sees the sacrifice of a perfect substitute. And I just want to ask you, have you ever asked your heavenly father to help you see him for who he is? Have you ever just very simply prayed that? Hey, father, um, I'm going through life and I'm probably making some stupid choices because I'm looking for fulfillment or acceptance, other things that I, you know, am lacking. And will you help me to understand that those things are found in you? Will you help me to know you as my true father. So Jesus is claiming to be the only route to salvation in the universe. That salvation is found in the one true God who calls himself our heavenly father. That's not all Jesus is claiming. Here's the other half of it. As the only way to reconnect us with the true father, Jesus is also claiming to be the only path to peace, actual peace, not just the idea of it, to truth. What is truth? Well, it's explanations that make sense in life, right? And also to life. And when Jesus talks about life, he's talking about fulfillment, sure, but he's really talking about eternal life. That these bodies we have will die. And Jesus says, for all who trust in me, your soul will go to be with your heavenly father for eternity and you will have eternal life. When Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying he's the only path that actually leads to our creator, Father God. 
He's the only source of actual truth that makes sense in the world. And he's the only source of actual life, fulfillment, and eternal life. Have you come to a place where you believe, as Jesus claims, that he is the source, he's the way to everything you need? The fulfillment you need, the security you seek. Have you come to a place where you really believe, yeah, Jesus is He's the way. There's only one way to what I'm seeking, and it's him. Have you come to that place? People get hung up on, well, that's very narrow to say that Jesus is the only way. Well, first of all, I don't, I'm not saying it. Jesus said it, okay? I'm just agreeing with what he said. But, you know, I was thinking about this. There's a lot of things that there's only one way to. I mean, from here, if you want to go hike Thumb Butte, there's pretty much one way there if you're going to drive. There's a lot of things in life where there's just one way, but the way's open. Jesus says, I'm the only way to true fulfillment, to true life. But I, I'm open to everyone, whoever will believe in me, whoever will have the humility to say, I know I'm a sinner and I need God to forgive me, will be saved. So here's a principle. Our inner person is restless until it finds peace, explanations, and life in the Heavenly Father. And as Jesus has just said, the the only way to find those things is in him. But I wonder, are you restless today? Are you restless for peace or for answers or for life? And if you are, look to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Next, Jesus claims this, I am the truth. In other words, the hunt, the search for a framework that makes sense of life, right? We, we all are looking for a way to see life that makes sense. Karl Marx was, Charles Darwin was. The, the hunt for that search ends in Christ. His words make sense of the world. And maybe we don't realize it, but we all do what we think actually makes sense to us. Why do people look at, at pornography? Because they believe it makes sense to them that it will fulfill them. Uh, even though all the research and all the experience shows that it just leads to a deeper and deeper and deeper addiction that leads to less and less fulfillment. But in the moment, it, it really seems like, yeah, this makes sense. This will fulfill me. Humans do what makes sense to them. And... and Jesus is saying when he says, I am the truth. Remember how the gospel of John starts, in the beginning was the word. Jesus is the word. He's saying, I am the missing puzzle piece. I'm the missing component that makes sense of the world around you. And until you come to me, the world around you won't make sense. You'll look to things that say they fulfill you and they won't. But I'm the truth. Look to me, put this one piece in, and now everything fits together and makes sense. You've got a framework that makes sense of life. In verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He's going to say a similar thing here in verses 23 and 24. Let's look at those. Jesus answered and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Like I said, there's a lot in here, right? You look at a couple verses and it's like, whoa, you know, that, that's, that's a lot, okay? But I had to draw this out because there's this theme in John 14 that Jesus says, if you really believe me, then your feet will follow. If you really believe me, you'll do what I say. Now, we know from the context and from Peter that he's not saying you'll do it perfectly, right? There are Christians who kind of have their Christian yardstick and they kind of measure, well, you're not really living up to my expectation of a Christian, so you should really be concerned about your salvation, okay? Jesus isn't saying that. We're in the context of all the disciples failing him and abandoning him. We often say when you, when you read the whole counsel of God, God's goal for you, his standard for you is not perfection in you. That comes from Christ. His, his desire from you is just faithfulness. When you fall down, get back up, okay? But Jesus is saying here, if you really love me, if you really believe in me, if I'm the truth that really makes sense to you in your heart, then you will follow me. You will act on it. And I saw that theme, I thought, man, that's not really comforting, you know? Like Jesus is comforting the disciples here, and he's saying, so if you really love me, you'll do what I say. Here's how to not be troubled. Do what I say. Yesterday, I was uh, moving some things around in our garage, and I had the car pulled out, and Jack and Zoe were running around. We were listening to the radio, and there's this cat. I never feed it. But it always comes to our house. And I'm kind of glad it's there because it probably eats some of the moles and rats and stuff. But that's part of why I don't feed it. I'm like, keep that thing hungry, okay? Keep it on the prowl. Well, well Zoe, our two-year-old, she loves animals. And I didn't even know the cat was around. Uh, but where our driveway is, there's two roads. There's one on each side. And all of a sudden, I look up, and Zoe, who's like this tall, is just sprinting for the road. You know, as I'm running towards her, I'm thinking, what is she doing? And then I see that the cat, the cat is there. And she's, she's going for the cat. She's not even thinking about the road. And like any good dad, of course, I swoop in and pick her up. And even though she's throwing a two-year-old tantrum and all upset, I take her away from the road. Why? How, was that very comforting to her? Well, well, no, but it was the reality of what she needed. She needed to not be running in the road as a two-year-old. And Jesus in this text, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm here to comfort you. And here's what you really need to do what I say. That's what's going to be best for your life. That's what's going to be the most healthy thing for you. Do what I say. Here's the principle. I can build my life on just one of two foundations. God's truth or the lies of the deceiver. Now, the deceiver, Satan, would like you to think there's a hundred choices, but there's really just two. We build our lives on God's truth, or we build our lives on some version, and there's thousands of versions. You think there's a lot of versions of the Bible. There's a whole lot more versions of Satan's deceit that you can fulfill yourself, that you don't need God that you know better than God, that God's not really looking out for you, that he doesn't actually love you. He's got a, hundreds of thousands of variations of his lies. See, Jesus claimed to be the truth 
is so much bigger than we realize. He's not saying, hey, there's this library of books, and of all the books, there's one that's called truth. You pull that one down, and that's kind of me. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, you know, I'm the missing piece. I'm the only truth. And and humanity, if, if we look at Scripture... We start in Genesis chapter 3, and God creates a perfect man and woman. They're living in a perfect place. There's no death. There's no cancer. And, and Satan comes to them, and he deceives them. He tells them, God's not really looking out for you. You know, yeah, your life in this garden is kind of built on God's truth, but, but here's what you really need to know. God's holding out on you. So do the one thing, the only thing he told you not to do, do it. And Adam and Eve did and plunged all of us into a world that is broken and infected with sin. I was reading the other day in Revelation. So that's the beginning of the story in Genesis. In Revelation chapter 20, we get this future prediction of the day when Jesus is going to throw Satan into the lake of fire. And Satan is going to be bound forever so that he can never again deceive and destroy. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says that Satan came to kill and steal and destroy. And as I was reading that in Revelation 20, verse 10, and Jesus says, here's why I'm throwing you in the lake of fire, because you deceived the nations. I mean, that's incredible. Here's Genesis, here's Revelation. There's 64 other books in the middle. Revelation was written around 60 or 70 AD after Jesus Genesis was written like 1,500 years before that by probably Moses, okay? These books are very far apart culturally. One's written in Hebrew, one's written in Greek. And here they are. They're the beginning and the end of God's story for us. And it begins and ends with Satan deceiving humanity. And that's where all our trouble comes from. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, He's saying, I'm the remedy. I'm the restoration. I'm the only way of getting back to the way it was supposed to be before the fall, before sin. Does that make sense? There's a third theme in this text. It's the theme of the Holy Spirit who gives life. You'll also remember from Genesis in the creation account that at creation, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, are all present. The Father's there. We know from John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ. The Word was with God, and the Word was the one true God. Colossians 1.15, through Him all things were created, and there's nothing that exists apart from Him. He holds all things together. Genesis also tells us, at creation, that the Holy Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Holy Spirit has an ability to create. And here's what we see. I am the life. Jesus says, I'm the way to the Father. I'm the truth that will set you free. So do what I say because I love you. And I am the life. That is the pursuit of internal peace and power, strength, and in Christ's gift the Holy Spirit, who fills us with peace, comfort, and guidance. Remember our context, how to find comfort. Jesus is saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. 
Remember our idea of claiming something that you already have, but you just got to go to the baggage carousel and, and pick it up by the handle? Here's what Jesus says of the peace you seek in your life in verses 16 and 17. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. That, that's an interesting Greek word, paraclete, means to come alongside someone who comes alongside you and puts their arm around you, that he may abide with you forever. Who's that? The spirit of truth. Who, by the way, the world cannot receive. Those people who don't believe in Christ, who don't trust Christ, they can't receive the Holy Spirit because they neither see him or know him. But you know him. In other words, you already have him if you know Christ. If you've trusted in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit with you and in you. Jesus here, this is a revolutionary idea. You see, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people at dramatic moments. Remember Samson, the guy with the big muscles, right? The Holy Spirit would come upon Samson and he'd he'd do some mighty feat. The Holy Spirit would come upon David, the shepherd boy, and he would defeat Goliath with his slingshot. The Holy Spirit would visit people and empower them temporarily. And Jesus here says, that spirit for all who believe in me, while I go to prepare the place for you, that spirit is going to live in you. Be an internal onboard power source. If you look in Galatians 5 verse 16, God tells us what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is unleashed in our lives, when we claim what we already have, when we invite through prayer and say, God, I want to be led by the Spirit. I want to be controlled by the Spirit. And you know what Galatians 5.16 describes? An impossibly good dad, an impossibly great spouse, an impossibly wonderful person to live with or work with. Why? Because what are the fruits of the Spirit? Love. Joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. How would you like to live with someone that no matter how tired you are, no matter how much you mess up, no matter how many times you lose your temper with them, they are always loving. No matter how tired they get, they're always joyful. No matter how difficult life gets, they always have peace. No matter how demanding you are of them, they're always patient. They're always kind. They're self-controlled. Jesus says, all of this is available to you through the Holy Spirit who already lives in you. Have you guys seen that TV show, Antiques Roadshow? I, I enjoy that show. It's on PBS is probably why. It's like one of our four channels that we get at our house. So... Antiques Roadshow, um, you know, people, especially back east where people have like attics and older homes, they find these things and they go in and there's these curators, uh, these, um, I don't know who these people are, but they know a lot of stuff, okay, about art and pottery. So it's like, okay, here's this like jug that we found in our attic. And of course, the person looks at it and it's like, oh, this was actually made in England around the... 1600s, and this uh, this piece is actually really unique because it was brought here by John Adams on one of his visits back. Or you know, it's like whoa. And so then the family who had this thing 
They didn't even know how valuable it was. And it was buried in all the clutter. Now they put it on display, right? They understand what it is. I think very many of us, the majority of us, myself included most days, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. He's a promised counselor. Let's look at verse 26. He's a helper. He teaches us. He reminds us what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we have him in us, but we kind of have him buried under a whole bunch of clutter in the attic. And so we're not claiming the peace, the joy, the love, the patience, the self-control that are totally available to us. We're not claiming them because we've neglected the Holy Spirit who Jesus said, um, you'll do greater things. It's better for you that I go because the Holy Spirit will live in you. You could put it this way. The peace that the world gives is outward in. The supernatural peace that Jesus offers is inward out. The world offers a lot of different varieties of its peace, but they are all the same, really the same thing. They all come from the outward in. The world says, find peace in circumstances around you that are good. Find peace in a home around you that's nice. Find peace in the leather-trimmed interior of your dream car. Find peace from the outside in. And Satan, of course, plays on that and says, drink your peace in some alcohol. Inject your peace. Look for peace. And it's all from the outward in, and none of it satisfies in the long run. Jesus says, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. In other words, all that outward in stuff, my peace is of a totally different variety. Mine comes from the inside out. That's why he can command. You know, I looked at the second half of verse 27 on one of my first readings of this text, and I thought, okay, Jesus is comforting these guys, and then he's just like, so don't let your hearts be troubled. Just don't do it. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm thinking, how's that comforting? It's comforting because Jesus is saying, I'm going and I'm leaving the Holy Spirit who's in you. And if you claim him, if you fan him into flame, if you live by the Spirit, you'll have a life of peace. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It will come from the inside out. It cannot be bothered by your circumstances. It's an untouchable, invincible peace that wells up within you. So because of that, don't let your hearts be troubled. Choose to claim what you already have, peace from within. Here's my question, believers. Have we been seeking the outward in peace that the world gives? If I can have that other baby, if I can get that job, if I can have that house, if I can get healthier, if I can find someone who loves me. Nothing wrong with those things, but if we look for our peace in them, we will be let down. Instead, we can claim inward out peace that is already ours. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. He's already given you peace about your child. He 
He's already given you peace about your health. But is it buried under the clutter in the attic? Or is it on display in your heart? Well, let's stand and pray. I warned you guys, there was a lot in here. But the Holy Spirit's our teacher, and we'll ask him to keep teaching us as we go from here today. Father, we thank you for being our Father. Jesus, thank you for being the way to the Father. Lord, if there's anyone in here who hasn't yet trusted in you, uh, we just want to give that opportunity right now. If you're here, and if you don't know that you know the Father, if you don't know that heaven is your home, then today can be your day of salvation where you call out to God. You say, God, I do believe Jesus is the way. I do believe he died on the cross for my sins. I do believe he rose again. I know I need a savior. Will you be my savior? Jesus, for all of us who've trusted in you, will you help us to live Live lives that show that you are the truth that makes sense. Will you forgive us, Lord, for the various ways that we're looking for outward in peace? And Holy Spirit, you're revealing those even now. Some of us are looking to homes, to careers, to children, to things from the outward in to give us peace. Those things can never fill us up. We've had them in the past, and they didn't fill us up, and now we're looking for them again. Will you help us today to claim what we already have, that you have given us peace through the Holy Spirit who lives in us? So, Jesus, we thank you that you're not just the way to God, you're not just the truth that makes sense, but you are the life we need today, and you give us that life through your Holy Spirit. Lord, I think of 1 Thessalonians 5 where it says not to quench the Spirit's fire, not to put out the Spirit's flame. And and I just know, Lord, there's a lot of us in here in our lives. We've quenched you, Spirit. We've buried you under the rubble in the attic. And we just, we repent of that. Lord, we tell you, we want to fan you into flame. We don't want to put out the flame. We want to fan you into flame. Lord, we need your peace in our lives. We have no other source of it. We need your joy. We need your love, your patience, your kindness. We need it in our homes. We need it in our marriages, in our workplaces. We especially need it in our hearts. So, Lord, you've told us your truth today, and now it's our choice as we go from here. Are we going to claim what's ours in your spirit, or are we going to look to the outward pieces of this world? We choose right now to look to you. Fill us from the inside out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.